Radio Mano Papachango. Hello world, hello Chris, this is Malte coming to you from rainy Hamburg, Germany. I've been listening to you since the last past seven years or so, so you were in my ear while I was uh, picking eggplants in Australia or on a train ride in Southeast Asia. So you've rode along with me, or I did with you, depends on the perspective, I guess, um, for a long time and within some pretty formative periods of my life so i just want to thank you chris not only for entertainment but for enlightenment so and now i'm listening to your latest roma instead of writing my bachelor thesis but somehow you touched on something i deal with in my th paper which is about moral development in children and i stumbled upon and thought a lot about the word ambiguitätstoleranz which translated to english is the ambiguity tolerance which I think we are all probably lacking here and there because the world isn't just black or white. It's a freaking rainbow, right? Well, in any case, thanks a lot, Chris. Keep on rocking in the free world. Hi, Chris. This is Maggie in Sausalito, California. I just got back from my morning kayak outing where I had finished listening to your interview with Dr. Eleanor Yanega. Um, in spirit of the podcast, I decided to listen to Older by George Michael for the first time. Incidentally, the album came out during the year of my birth, so I'll let you do that math. As it turns out, uh, the seals out here are huge fans of George Michael. Usually you'll see one or two in the morning if you're lucky. And today I was followed by a bob of five seals. So that was really special. Much love to you from California, and I hope to meet you somewhere along the road. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much, Maggie and the Seals and Malte from Hamburg. Yeah, tolerance for ambiguity is is an important thing. Um, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because it's one of the first things I noticed in myself. I was I almost said it's the first thing I noticed about Spain, but it's really one of the first things I noticed um in the reflection of myself that the mirror of Spain provided uh when I first got there in 89 90 something like that. Um <clears throat> I I remember being frustrated by the amount of uh, gray area, if that makes sense, in, in Spanish consciousness and Spanish society. Um, you know, a concrete example would be one time, and this was a couple of years later when I had a motorcycle um, and I went, I, I may have told this story on the podcast before, but I, I remember going to the Ramblas. I was, I was on my way to meet somebody and The Ramblas is like this major pedestrian street that goes right through the middle of downtown. Um, and 
their people park their motorcycles along the side of it up on the sidewalk. And there are signs that say no parking, but everybody just parks there anyway, right? So I pulled up to park and there's a cop standing there. And I thought, okay, um, this is kind of weird because the cop is standing right there and I'm parking my motorcycle right under the sign that says no parking of motorcycles. So just to make sure I'm not going to get a ticket, I walked over to the cop and I said, uh, is it okay if I, it's, it's cool if I park my motorcycle here, right? And he said, no. Um, but then he said this, this uh, Spanish expression, uh, which was the first time I had heard it. He said, um, no, pero normalmente te damos la, la vista larga, I think was the expression, which means like, no, but normally we overlook it. And I thought, okay, well, first of all, in a way that's kind of comforting because you know, here's a policeman saying, you know, we're not going to, normally nobody's going to give a shit uh, about something minor like this. Um, but rather than being comforted by that, I was annoyed by it because my American, you know, uptight white boy consciousness wants a clear answer. I want to know, is this permitted or not? Am I going to get a ticket or not? I don't want to carry the ambiguity around. That drives me fucking crazy. Um, and it still does to a large extent. I, I mean, when I was learning Spanish and, you know, there would be some contradiction, you know, like, okay, this word ends with the letter A, um, but unlike almost all other words that end with the letter A, it's not feminine. It's actually masculine. And I could reel off a list of these um, because they stick in my memory because they're these these nonsensical exceptions, right? El sistema, el problema. That makes no sense. And um, and I people who were you know trying to teach me Spanish would laugh like, dude, what? Like just it's just the way it is. Like, and I'm I'm I want an answer. Why? Why is it like that? You know why is it? El motocicleta. No, wait, wait. It's la moto. It's the opposite. It ends in O, but it's feminine because it's la motocicleta, right? Um, anyway, those of you who don't speak Spanish will have no idea what I'm talking about and maybe be bored out of your minds by this entire diatribe. But the point is that uh, over my 20 years living off and on in Spain, I came to see that even though it still is a source of, of frustration for me and annoyance, that it is a source of wisdom, that there is something very deeply wise and um, necessary about having a tolerance for ambiguity because, um, as Monte says, it is the nature of reality. We live in analog where there's a gradual 
shading shift from black to white. We do not live in a digital world composed of ones and zeros, on and off. We live in a world where things are often ambiguous. That is the nature of our reality. It's the nature of our lives. And I think so many of the problems that we have and the disappointments and the 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 tragedy of our lives is that we are encouraged both by misguided cultural teachings and I think by the nature of consciousness to try to pin things down, um, label them, um, put them in a category where then we can go on and think about other things. You're good or you're evil. You're my friend or my enemy. You're, um, you know, smart or stupid. And the reality is that everybody's got things they're really smart about and things they're really stupid about. And every friend has the capacity to hurt us and every enemy has the capacity to teach us and, and concepts start to fall apart when they include their opposite. And, you know, every place is both a spot where you could probably park and probably shouldn't park. It's all kind of depends on the moment, depends on the situation, depends on the context. And, um, yeah, so that's one of the, the things that uh, it, it's something I think about a lot, uh, not only because of the personal circumstances of my life sort of shifting between the United States where the law is the law, goddammit, and Spain, where it's the bende, you know, it's, um, uh, but I, I also think there's something very deep about um, trying to sort out how to live in the world in that question of tolerance for ambiguity. Okay, I've been talking 10 minutes already, and I haven't even said anything. This episode is with a woman named Deborah Kopakin, who is a total badass. She is um, amazing. She's an amazing person. She's younger than me, four years younger than me, but sort of, you know, kind of close in age. So we grew up with a lot of the same stuff. She's from the East Coast. Uh, she went to uh, university from 84 to 80, 88. And then, um, and I was in 80 to 84. So just uh, very close. And uh, she got out of university and decided she was going to be a war photographer. So she flew off to Paris, got a, uh, had a gig at um, a photo agency, I think Magnum, a major photo agency, and um, worked there uh, for a year or so or something. And then she flew off to fucking Afghanistan and was cruising around Afghanistan with Mujahideen who are, you know, now known as the Taliban in, in many cases. Um, those of you who are too young to remember this, uh, before the sort of current 
endless war in Afghanistan. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. I think in maybe it was eighty or eighty four. I rem- I think it. I think it was eighty because I think that um, Jimmy Carter was still president. Um, and I remember that uh, there was a, a problem with the Olympics. I think we did we boycott the Olympics that were being held in the Soviet Union. I don't know. Anyway, it was uh, it was a big fucking deal. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and the United States, um, as we tend to do, supplied lethal weapons and training to um, freedom fighters in Afghanistan who were, uh, we were helping to fuck up the Soviet Union. Um, and they did. Soviet Union finally retreated. And then shortly thereafter, the entire company, uh, country collapsed. There's a great movie called Charlie Wilson's War, uh, which I would recommend you check out if you'd like to learn something about this uh, situation. Uh, the war was run from Pakistan, largely by the CIA. Philip Seymour Hoffman is in the movie. I think Tom Hanks might be in the movie as well. Um, but it's a it's a very good movie based on a factual recounting of um, this period in American history. Anyway, these freedom fighters, as soon as they kicked the Soviet Union out, they still had all these weapons. Then they, you know, closed. There were Muslim fundamentalists. They closed the schools to girls and, you know, started uh, enacting draconian um, policies against the West. Anyway, these are the people now using a lot of the same missiles that the Reagan administration sold them or gave them to shoot down Americans now because then, of course, we invaded the country and uh, we're still there. God knows, 15, 20 years later. I don't even know why. I don't think anyone knows why. But Deborah was there uh, and, and then was many other places as well. She's fascinating. She's written a bunch of books. Um, she has been played on television by, uh, forget her name now, Kinner, Catherine Kinner or Kinney Kinner, uh, who was also in, uh, being John Malkovich. Um, she talks about that, like meeting an actress who's sitting across the table, like absorbing your mannerisms and way of speaking. It's fascinating. Anyway, this woman has had an amazing life. Um, in addition to all this stuff, she's raised kids. She, she's, she's done a bunch of stuff. She, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've said enough to entice you. I don't want to ruin her stories, but um, she's been through a lot, and a lot of it has been exotic and cool and admirable and enviable. Enviable, enviable is that the word? Um, and a lot of it's been really, really difficult. And, um, and yeah, she, she covers a lot of that stuff. So I am thrilled that she gave me some time to tell some of her story on this podcast. She has a memoir coming out uh, in the spring. I think it's called uh, lady parts. We talk about that a bit. So if you're into really smart, really cool, badass women who are living incredibly rich lives, you are going to want to listen to this episode. 
Just before I get to the episode, this is one of the few episodes of Tangentially Speaking, which is uh, sponsored by Lilo. I don't know how Deborah would feel about uh, the fact that her episode is sponsored by a sex toy company, but it's they're really good sex toys. And Deborah, if you hear this and you want one, I'm sure we can hook you up. Um, we're giving away uh, a, a Lilo, every a Lilo product every month for a while here. Uh, this month we're giving away the model, uh, which I hear from my lady friends is pretty much everyone's favorite. It's called the Soraya. Uh, we're giving away the Soraya 2. The color is aqua. It's a $219 value. Uh, and all you need to do is on Instagram, make sure you follow me, make sure you follow Lilo, L-E-L-O, and um, tell us something about yourself, why you want this particular product, um, and uh, we will choose a winner and send it to you uh, sometime, uh, I think, within 10 days or something. Anyway, the, the details are all on my Instagram feed, that Chris Ryan on Instagram. And in the meantime, if you want to buy something on Lilo, Valentine's Day is coming up, gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, use the code Chris Ryan and you will get 20% off all full priced items. And you'll see. They also have stuff for men. They have uh, various uh, devices that can be used by men as well. So if you uh, want 20% off, pamper yourself. This is the best stuff. I mean, these things are, are so space age. These are like the Tesla of sex toys. Um, you know, they're programmable. They're totally immersible in water. You can use them in the shower, in the bathtub. They're like USB rechargeable, lithium battery. Like they're just so cool. And they don't, you know, they're not like tacky, um, vulgar looking sex toys. They're, they're elegant and the colors are beautiful and the materials, it's like this sort of, you know, very high end silicon, you know, that feels good on your skin. It's warm. Um, they've got, I mean, this, check out the, the Soraya. I think it's, it's really beautiful. The Soraya, by the way, is, um, what's known as the rabbit, a rabbit style. So it has, uh, you know, some women like an innie, some like an Audi. Well, this guy has an innie and an Audi. And so you can uh, program it to stimulate the outside of your body or the inside of your body or both at the same time or alternating. I mean, it's, you know, sometimes I, I envy women their orgasmic capacity. It's, uh, it's a pretty beautiful thing. So uh, check out Lilo. All right, that's all I'm going to say about sex toys for a while. I guess that's it. I just wanted to say one more thing. Uh, you know, it always amazes me when I hear from people and um, the different places that people listen to the podcast. You know, there's a guy riding his tractor out on a field in Montana or Wyoming or wherever, you know, and he's listening to podcasts. Why not? You're, you're out there, you know, going around in circles in your tractor all day, or there's a guy driving a semi truck or there's 
uh, Maggie, you know, on a kayak in San Francisco Bay being followed by seals listening to George Michael. Um, And there are also people who are alone. There are people who are um, like living alone. And uh, I just want to say thank you to those of you who are in a house and you don't have a lot of contact with other humans, um, either because of COVID or just because of the way life is at the moment. Um, and uh, you let a few voices into the room with you and you get your human contact through podcasts. Um, I know there are a bunch of you, and uh, I, I, I'm thinking particularly of a guy on uh, on Reddit who who wrote something very um, vulnerable and and open, and um, and I I said to him, I'll be thinking of you next time I turn on the mic, and I am. I'm thinking of you, and I'm thinking of other people who are in the same situation as you, and uh, I just want to say thank you for inviting me in, and. Um, Yeah. Hope I'm a good guest. All right. Thank you for listening to this, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to play you out with a song I think I've played on the podcast before. It's a song I listen to often. It's it's definitely in my sort of innermost rotation. It's a song I've never heard on the radio. Um, And it's a song I have to say I don't understand and as if you listen to this podcast you know that i love to unpack songs i love to really listen to the lyrics and and figure out exactly what is being talked about and and how and you know sort of look at it as poetry and this song is interesting for me because it's a song that I don't understand. I don't really know exactly what he's talking about. But regardless of that, it's a song that packs a lot of emotional um, import. It, it, it really touches me, and I don't really know why. Um, so there's a lot of mystery in it. Uh, it's something about the chord changes. It's something about the phrases, something about the timber of his voice. I, I don't know. Anyway, the song is called Go With God. And then in parentheses, it says Topless Shoeshine. So even the title is not uh, particularly illuminating as far as I can tell. It's from an album called Trampoline. And the artist is Joe Henry. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Deborah Kopakin. And I would encourage you to go to her webpage, DebraKopakin.com. It's her last name is spelled C-O-P-A-K-E-N. Um, you can read there the letter that she talks about in our conversation that she wrote to a man who raped her. Uh, a letter that that man then responded to with a phone call, as you'll hear. Um, And you can also read her bio, which uh, is one of the most amusing, 
it's just it's just a great bio. I mean, you've read a lot of bios, right? So and so born here, went to college, did that. Read hers. It's unlike anything you've read before. DebraKopakin.com. All right, this is Joe Henry. Go with God. Topless shoe shine from the album Trampoline. Thanks for listening to this podcast, and I will be back at you before you know it. Stand up here When the night is cool and clear And everything is at my feet Nothing in my head Words, they seem so thick and slow You can kill them all before they go Watch them tumble down And leave them there for dead And shine, shine It almost shines like you were here with me Blow me bandits, make me Muscles with their teeth and try to find a little shade till they can find their way. For all it took, it's my belief we shouldn't waste one moment's grief. I mean, what else we gonna leave our kids when we're gone? Someday and shine, shine, it almost shines like you were here with me. Now the trees all rage and come to life. The day gives out. But it takes a wife who carries on behind his back, lets the rabble through. Time has run away with us, and it laughs at all tears and fuss. Best go with God and let me trust the ghost, and here's you.
I, I don't remember how I came across your work. I think on Twitter you said something or I said something. Some, something happened and I looked you up and it was just like, oh, my God, this woman is so fascinating. And you're still and you have a memoir coming out soon. Lady Parts. Is that? Yeah, I have a I have a new memoir coming out in August. I mean, if, if we're here in August, who knows? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But <laughs> all things, you know, vaccination wise working and not getting COVID again. Yeah. August uh, 3rd, I think 2021. Um, but yeah, I've done a, I've 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 had many lives, but I think a lot of writers these days, I don't feel unusual in that, you know, I was a I was a war photographer for four years, and then I worked in TV news for six years. And then, you know, I'd had two babies uh, at that time when I was at the end of my TV news career, and one of them was two and one of them was one. And I was trying to get part-time work from NBC and my boss had approved it and his boss didn't. And I was just asking for four days a week because, you know, you have, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, trying to balance a, a job where you're traveling all the time and kids. Um, so that's when I started uh, writing Shutter Babe, which then became sort of a New York Times bestselling memoir. And then I went on to write other books. So now it, this Lady Parts is my seventh book. Now, did you, is Lady Parts your title? Please tell me it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Because yeah. it was I came excruciating. Up with it in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a mirror in the shower <laughs> or are you just cleaning your lady parts <laughs> um, well lady parts is is got a double entendre right so it's sure. both about um female reproductive organs uh, many of mine have been removed and so that was the that was the impetus but also it's about the parts that we ladies play in society and how society tries to keep us down um so the reason it came to me in the showers, I was I was looking down at my body and I have all these scars. So I had a hysterectomy um, back in 2012. I had a trachelectomy in 2017. And then three weeks after the trachelectomy, which is a cervix removal, um, I nearly died. I, I bled out. Um, and it was uh, a disease or a complication from cervix removal called vaginal cuff dehiscence and i had never heard of it before but um if you don't have emergency surgery you're dead within hours uh, my daughter found me wandering around the apartment um big chunks of me were coming out uh, falling mm -hmm. out on the floor and so i was like walking around with a tupperware container you know glass tupperware not plastic i didn't want bpvs right so i'm walking around with a glass tupperware container putting these chunks in it because I didn't know, I thought they looked like my internal organs. I had no idea what was happening. I was just bleeding out. And then I was so delirious and my daughter was saying, we have to get to the hospital. We got to call an ambulance. And you know, this is America. And you know, if you call an ambulance, it can be an $8,000 bill. And I was out of work at the time. And I said, don't you dare call an ambulance. I'm afraid of the bill. We ended up taking Uber pool to the emergency room um, where Ooh. I walked in and passed out. Uber pool. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm a, <laughs> at the Uber time I was a single much. mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was a single, I was a single parent, um, two kids in college, yeah. uh, paying that by myself. And, um, I had just lost my job, uh, in like a few months earlier and there was just no money coming in. I had, yeah. um, I had 
taken apart my 401k and was living off of that um, at great, you know, tax penalty. And so every penny counted. And our country's so crazy with regards to healthcare that, you know, you can call an ambulance and then get a bill for $8,000. I mean, who knows, yeah. right? Yeah. And I just didn't have that in the bank, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, so we took Uber Pool to the emergency room. <laughs> and you made it. And uh, where I, well, I made it. I passed out. Um, my giant glass Tupperware of whatever was inside me um, splattered. I, I passed out. The glass shattered, went everywhere. Um, I have very few memories of that evening, but I'm told that I was sort of in and out of consciousness. Um, my literary agent showed up because my daughter, who's 20, was by herself. And she took my thumb, you know, it was the old iPhone. So she took my thumb onto the iPhone and found the last 10 people I texted and just thought, okay, I'm gonna text these people because maybe they can come join me, but it was 4th of July weekend. And so nobody was around except for my literary agent, uh, Lisa Leshny, who showed up at the hospital at four in the morning. And my sister, Jen, who lives in California, but just happened to be in town doing research at the um, Lincoln Center Library. So uh, they showed up and helped my daughter out and I uh, was wheeled in for emergency surgery like I think at 5 or 6 a.m. or something like that. Uh, that's the best literary agent story I think I've ever heard. Well, I'll never <laughs> leave her. <laughs> I've heard a lot of bad ones. <laughs> um, she's kind of amazing. She's really yeah. – she's more than just a literary agent. She's a friend. Yeah, she's great. She threw me a 50th birthday when I didn't want to, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. All right. That's beautiful. Um, can we kind of go – there's so much I, I'd love to cover with you. Um, and I, I, Sure. Can we go chronologically? Does that make sense? I know you went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. So you're a you know, high school, high achiever, did your homework, good girl, good, good grades, extracurricular activities. Were you that type? Or, yeah. Or... Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, you can peg me. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just assume you, get, you don't go to Harvard from being, you know, smoking a lot of weed and hanging out with the wrong crowd, right? Well, I did smoke a lot of weed, too. And, and I, you know, I was one of those. I had no friends and all the friends. Do you know what I mean? I was part of no group and part of every group. So I could sort of I was on the math team and also a cheerleader. Like I could just kind of go between groups, mm. never really getting attached. Right. Just wherever the wind blew um and was that intentional or, I, or would you want to have been in a did you want to be in a group and just didn't find footing i wanted to be in a group desperately but i never found my people you know i mm. found people that i liked um but i grew up in the suburbs of uh dc in a little town called potomac maryland yeah i don't i just i never i never found my people First time I ever felt like I found my people was in war photography, where I loved everyone that I was spending time with, but it was also intense, right? So when you're yeah. a war photographer or covering war as a journalist, it's, um, you know, you're in the trenches with others and you are experiencing near death and you're experiencing the highs and lows and boredom of, of war coverage. And a lot of it was boredom, um, but boredom with a, with a tinge of, oh, my God, we could die any minute. Did you study journalism at Harvard or how did you get from the suburbs you to? Could, you couldn't. 
Yeah, you couldn't study journalism at Harvard. You weren't allowed. You could. I worked on the Crimson, which was the school newspaper. Mm. Um, I wrote op-eds and I did photography and I did reporting and that kind of stuff. But you, you couldn't do it as a class. Um, in fact, the two things that I really were was interested in, I don't know why I ended up at Harvard. Like it just uh, back then, you didn't visit schools; you just sort of went on reputation, right? And so mm. I applied early action there, and I got in, and I just went. And then I realized when I got in, wait. The drama department, you can't do, there's no drama department. Like you have to do plays outside of your schoolwork. And journalism, the two things that I was interested in were not part of the curriculum. So I ended up starting off as an English major and then I switched to what they call VES, which is their fancy name for art, visual and environmental studies. You know, mm. they can't just call it art, they right. call it visual <laughs> and environmental studies. <laughs> um, and then I ended up doing sort of a double major in visual and environmental studies in English and, and ended up doing a thesis in photography. So I eventually found my, my place in terms of study there, but um, really, truly, like acting in plays and doing journalism were my two loves. Mm. And I wasn't able to do that there and get a degree in that. Mm. Which was Interesting silly. how you've how you've managed to combine them in your life. I, you, I, I was reading, I think, on your Wikipedia page that one of your pieces in Modern Love was turned into a, an episode of a TV show, and you're played by Catherine yeah, Keener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have nothing. Like, I, I really, that's something that feels like it happened to me. I, I didn't really make that happen at all, aside from writing the story, right? Um that was a weird dream come true. I mean, if somebody had said to me, who would you want to play you in, you know, in in a movie version of your life? Well, you know, Catherine Keener would have been at the top of that list. Yeah. And there was Catherine Keener in my in my email inbox saying, hey, let's meet. Fantastic. You know, it was very, it was very exciting. It was very exciting. I really liked her a lot. She was cool and smart and funny and we had lunch together, and by the end of the lunch, she was, you know, doing my hand motions the same way that I did my hand motions, and just watching her transform. It was the day before she was supposed to shoot, and she just, you know, right there in front of my face became me. That must be so strange. It was wild. What an experience. It was, it was wild. It was wild and, like, thrilling. You know, it didn't... When you write a modern love back in the day that I wrote it, you get 250 bucks, so it doesn't make you rich. And when you sell it to them, I think it was 4,900. So, you know, it's nice extra cash and pays for that month's rent and some food and stuff like that, but it's not gonna, you know, make a difference in your life. But it was very cool to sit there on set that one day and watch her say words that I had written. And that modern love had come about you know, I got divorced in 2013, or I got separated from my marriage in 2013. The divorce, I think, finally came through in 2018. It was a long, drawn-out thing. And I was solo parenting for a long time, meaning my ex had moved across the country. And so I had to take on, for uh, health insurance purposes, I had to take on a bunch of different jobs um, just to have health insurance, pay my kids' tuition, all, you know, all, like all the important adult stuff, right? Um, one of those jobs was as a vice president at a PR firm. So that's where I was working when I wrote that modern love story. And every day at the PR firm, I was using my writing to, and I was working in the health and pharmaceuticals department, and I was using my writing to help the pharmaceutical industry. 
and uh, that was very soul crushing. Mm. You know, I knew I had to do this for um, my kids, and there were no other jobs at the time that I could land, and nobody was hiring a middle-aged lady. You know, fifty-something lady, you're you're invisible to to people who are doing the hiring. Um, you're seen as over the hill and not necessary to a corporate structure. So I found this job, and it paid well enough, and I'm writing copy for the pharmaceutical industry. And um, one day I'm taking the subway in from Inwood, where I used to live. So that was at the end of the A train line, the 207th Street stop of the A train line. And if you got on the train um, at that stop, you could get a seat. Mm. So every day on that train, I would open my laptop, and I would have 40 minutes exactly to write. And I said, okay, this is my writing day right here on the subway. And I would open my laptop and I would, you know, pour my heart out into whatever form it felt best that day, a poem, or in this case, it was an essay, a modern love essay. It felt very validating to have this thing that I was, I was trying to connect, right? Writing the, why do we write other than to connect with others? There's no other reason except for to make money and help the pharmaceutical industry, right? But um, I was writing on that train to connect with others. And the fact that it sort of got sold as a modern love and then turned into an episode of a TV show said to me that my gut instinct at that moment was was correct, that, that you need to use writing, even if you're working at this terrible job you don't like. There's always time to do that thing that you know how to do well and use it for good rather than for evil. When did you realize and, um, that you were a good writer? I don't think I ever realized I was a good writer. I just have always written. Mm. Um, I wrote my first short story when I was four. And I remember it because, do you know those Dr. Seuss, my book about me? Yeah. There was like, the, the Dr. Seuss has this, my book about me and it said, write me a story. The story was inane. It was about, and my sister actually took it out for my, my, uh, my wedding back in 93, but it was a story about a bear and a dog and they're in a boat and they're trying to get across the ocean and, you know, like whatever, whatever four-year-old comes up with. But I remember the, the power of that, like to have thought of an idea, executed it, and executing is the hard part of writing, and then the feeling of having written. I mean, mm -hmm. that's an exciting feeling of having a story mm. that you can show people and people can read it. I think I thought I was a bad writer. Like when I got to Harvard, um, I was a bad writer in my own head because I couldn't get into a writing class. There was only one fiction writing class there and um, Mary Robeson taught it and I didn't get in. I kept submitting short stories and I never got in. So then um, I took Freshman Expos with Sven Burkertz, who's a really good nonfiction writer. And I got C plus, B minus is the worst grades I've ever gotten in my life in that writing class. So I just sort of, thought, okay, well, I'm not a good writer. And that's why I ended up doing more photography at the time. I was like, well, mm. I can do this. I know how to take pictures. And the problem when you, when you push down um, something that's been part of your life forever, you know, writing really had been part of my life forever. I wrote in my diaries. I wrote for the school paper, all that stuff, is that it comes back to haunt you. You can't not write. So when I was in Afghanistan covering... Um, the Soviet retreat. Of course I was writing as well. I mean, you're stuck in a cave with a bunch of Mujahideen with nothing else to do from like dark until morning. And so of course I was writing. And then mm. I would sell that writing along with the photographs. And then at the time, 
magazines didn't understand you if you were a writer and a photographer. You had to choose. You had to say, I'm going to be the photographer and you're going to go along with the writer or or you're the writer and you have to bring a photographer with you. And I would kept saying to the magazine editors, look, I can do both. Let me do both. And only Oprah magazine allowed me to do both. The ed- my editors at Oprah magazine, um, they allowed me to shoot and and write the story as well. Strange that they'd be resistant to that. You know, they'd save money. Even if they paid, you know, the, know. Sa- the writer fee and the photography fee, they're still saving travel expenses and all the rest. I didn't understand it either. Um, the only time I ever understood it was when I went back to Moscow for more magazine. And the story was about going back to Moscow and meeting my ex-husband's uh, father that he'd never met before. And so they wanted photos of me and my family meeting so that I couldn't, I couldn't, I mean, unless, you know, you shoot a selfie with a Nikon, like, but they wanted photos of that taken yeah. from their photographer. So when you were, when you got into war photography, you did that straight out of college, right? Mm-hmm. And did you just decide, Yeah. So I'm, did you go freelance and then sell some photos and get into it that way? Or did you get a job? Did someone pay you to go cover war? Um, the summer of 87, um, one of the visiting professors at college was a was a photographer named Gilles Perez, and he's a magnum photographer, and he did this amazing book called Telex Iran about the Iranian Revolution, just a phenomenal black and white magnum photographer. And he gave me uh, a job as an intern that summer at Magnum. Um, it was unpaid, so I had to work as a waitress at night. So I was like working at the Magnum during the day and working as a waitress at night, you know, I couldn't not take that job. And what my job was, was to sort of get the packages back from magazines and resort the photos back into the files. And because of that, I saw every amazing photo that every Magnum photographer has ever taken. And Mm. it was an incredible education, right? So when I left college, I said to Gilles, like, what do I do? I want to be a war photographer like these guys, like all these photos that I'm seeing. And he said, you just have to go to Paris got to go and you just got to make your name for yourself why do you go to paris because you're closer to the news at the time you know Mm. everything was happening in closer proximity to paris than anywhere else and also it was the center of photojournalism for the world you know it really was where all the photos would come in and out of um and lots of flights would go in and out of there so back in the day when you would shoot film um you would have to go to the airport right with your with your film and find a passenger, this is pre 9-11, and you'd say to the passenger, please, I just shot these photos of war. Uh, they've got to get to my agent. There's going to be somebody there meeting you named Jean-Francois. And Jean-Francois will have a black t-shirt on and I'm going to mark what you're wearing. I mean, you just, you have to coordinate this often in, in communist countries where it would take an hour and a half just to get a phone call out, right? So you'd mm. have to get wait in line for the one phone in the hotel and call out to your agent and say, okay, the guy's wearing a Madonna t-shirt and an earring, you know, uh, please meet him at this flight at this time. Um, so I did that. I moved to Paris right after college. I just moved there. Um, three friends of mine from college also wanted to move to Paris. So we got a one bedroom apartment together. Um, the couple, Philida and Ben, uh, stayed in the bedroom. My friend Annie stayed in the living room and I literally slept in the closet. I I slept behind like a particle board Ikea placard, right? Um, uh, with like a tiny little futon on the floor. But it was great, right? This is, you know, post-college life. Um, yeah. 
eventually they all left. I stayed. I moved in with a with a colleague who let me sleep on his pull-out couch for a while until I could make enough money as a photographer to have my own apartment. Then I had this tiny apartment on the Rue Saint-Denis, um, which was so small that you'd have to roll up the futon during the day or else you couldn't walk around. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was, I mean, I, I, I look back on those four years living in Paris and traveling to wars as just this magical moment that could never happen again in that exact way, right? Because it was just a different time. You, there was no such thing as pool photography or like, you know, after the Iraq war, when you when you could just be, you were, we were so free. We didn't have to tell anyone where we were going to be. Mm. I could go in with a group of Mujahideen. I mean, I did get yelled at by the um, American embassy, by the uh, ambassador in Peshawar, who said, you know, why did you go without telling us? And I said, I didn't know I was supposed to tell you. I was 22 years old. I, I, I don't know. You just went, right? So um, so what happens to this this sweet, good girl from the suburbs who's a cheerleader and goes to Harvard who's like, fuck it, I'm going to a war zone. What happens inside you that sends you to the edge that, like that? Yeah. I mean, should I, like, am I allowed to blame LSD? Like, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Why not? I mean, I really John, do feel that. John, the Beatles that, did, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. That's funny. My junior year of college, mm. um, I was sort of planning on going to law school, even though I was really into photography and all this other stuff and writing. And I was going to do the right thing and do what my parents wanted me to do. And uh, I dropped acid with some friends. And in the middle of dropping acid, I was looking at all my photography books and realizing how much I loved images. And then I had this moment where I went into the bathroom and I'd had some makeup on my face and I ended up just, like, just taking it off. Like, what are you doing? Why are you wearing this paint on your face? Mm. And then I came out of the bathroom and I just said, like, you know, in the way that psychedelics take away the ego and leave you stripped to what you really and who you really are. I just said to myself, I'm a photographer. I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm, I'm somebody who likes to make things. Like I like to write, I like to photograph. I want to do that with my life. And war photography, it just fascinating, it fascinated me because it was the kind of photography that if you did it well, the pictures were amazing. Nick Utt's photo of the girl running from napalm in Vietnam was sort of a defining image for me in the weirdest way. I took piano lessons as a kid, and in the piano lesson waiting room was a Life magazine, the Best of Life magazine photographs. And that's where I really first sort of became cognizant of this idea of a history of photography, right? What does photography look like? How does it look from the turn of the century till now? Um, what are the images that really speak to you? And this Nick Ut photograph of this young girl screaming and running naked napalm um, was the image that really lodged in my consciousness. And then working at Magnum and seeing, you know, seeing the work of Robert Kappa and seeing the work of Jim Noctway and seeing the work of Joseph Kudelka, like these people were heroes to me. And I also didn't see a lot of women doing war photography at the time. And I just thought I'd like to become a part of that canon in some way. Mm. I'd like to make my mark in that field. And I also, I loved history, 
but I'm not a real I'm not really good at retaining information if I don't experience it. Mm. So you can I can read a whole book about, you know, Afghanistan and it's not going to be the same as going to Peshawar and actually traveling with a group of mujahideen and really understanding from a personal psychological physical point of view what that meant and in fact you know i live in new york and on 9 11 my daughter was four years old we watched from the roof of our building as the towers fell and before anyone was saying that this is uh anyhow related to um what i'd seen the sort of the mess we'd left behind in afghanistan i knew i just knew I had this sort of gut feeling watching the towers fall, like this is our comeuppance. Mm. And uh, we left a mess behind. We left a giant mess. When I was there, there were seven groups of Shiite, eight groups of Sunni. They all fought amongst each other um, for power. Eventually, Gulbadina Hekmatyar, who became the president of Afghanistan, who was just sort of ruthless. I mean, you did not want to be around that guy. You did not want to travel with that guy. But it was... You know, we were trying to contain communism, and instead we made a giant mess. We gave these guys stinger missiles without helping to to to, to clean up the mess that we made. We just walked out. It's what we've done over and over again. You know, commercially and and foreign policy. It's amazing. You know, you told that beautiful story about uh, LSD helping you clarify uh, your passion and your identity, and and again, and and I can see you think in terms of image as well, like taking off the makeup, right? Like revealing mm-hmm. the true woman inside there. Um, I had a similar experience with LSD when I was in college and I um, had this incredible clarity. I was listening to uh, some Chopin and I was tripping and it just touched me so deeply. And I called my best friend at the time, who's a, a musician and I said to him, Mike, I know what I'm going to do with my life. He said, what's that? I said, I'm going to be a concert pianist. And there was this long pause. And he said, Chris, you don't play piano. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but I'm going to learn, Mike. You'll see. <laughs> it d- didn't quite work out. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I did have that Except moment of Except for the fact clarity. that what you <laughs> – Yep. Except for the fact that what you're doing is not – playing piano but what you're doing is creating stuff for people to experience you know i i became aware of your work through sex at dawn Uh right and that was an important book i mean you put out something that i felt was clarifying for a lot of people who were struggling with the idea of monogamy or struggling with the idea of sexuality it was it's an important book, right? And so, yeah, you're not a concert pianist, but you're doing something similar. Like I think of all making Thanks. stuff yeah. as part of the same impulse, you know? The, during COVID, I've been painting. Like I'm, I'm a shitty painter, but I I paint because why not, right? It's fun. Yeah, yeah. I love the, the image of you on the A train, you know, in like the most public place imaginable creating a private world and communing directly with a reader in this very intimate sort of way uh, in the midst of all the noise and the announcements. And I lived in Manhattan. I I can hear it in my head, you know, please stand clear of the closing doors. Like, oh, geez. You know, it's just uh, 
such an interesting con- not conflict but juxtaposition i guess of of that deep intimacy and almost a trance like state that you're trying to achieve there in the midst of the chaos it's it's interesting as you say, it's well. It's, I mean, important important to that important to that is the um, the noise canceling headphones. I have a pair of Bose <laughs> noise canceling headphones, and there's no way I would be able to do that without uh, that. And also, by the way, um, turns out I'm deaf. <laughs> I just found out because I haven't been able to like understand anyone wearing a mask at all, and so I went to a hearing specialist like a month ago. I mean, this is all very new. I have 50% hearing loss in both ears. Oh. And yeah. And so all that noise that other people hear on the subway probably is a lot less for me. Well, we could go on a whole tangent about um, hearing aids and how ridiculously expensive they are. They're $6,000. $6,000 of which health insurance pays two. And I tried them for a week and I gave them back because I was like, this is not worth, I was going to have to pay $333 a month to, you know to have these and I just thought I'm I'm happy being deaf it's fine like I, I, I can't afford this like, yeah. who can afford this stuff and why like why if I pay health insurance and I'll pay a lot of money in health insurance because I'm paying COBRA right now why is it that they can fix my knee or they can fix my elbow or they can fix my cold or whatever it is that I need in other parts of my body what, like why is the ear off limits you know why mm. why are our teeth off limits like what what uh, why and yeah. I know the answer why, obviously. It's expense. They're trying to, you know, they don't want you to get well. This is all, the whole health insurance industry is this crazy Ponzi scheme where we're just paying all this money in and then they take it out and then they buy back their their stock options. It's just like, it's, it, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Yep. It is. It is. I, I am not a fan of civilization, as you may have heard. It's... Uh... <laughs> It's, yeah, and I, I, you know, I think, like you, I, um, psychedelics really helped me see through the bullshit, not only my own ego, as you were describing, but also the external bullshit of, you know, what, uh, what we're told will make us happy that doesn't, and, you know, foreign policy, we're told we're, you know, oh, they were, you know, protecting freedom and yeah, it's all a bunch of bullshit. It's all about trade routes and resources and whatever. Um, But when I've never been in a war, I've traveled all over the world um, through my 20s and most of my 30s, I backpacked all over Asia, Latin America, Alaska, I've been all over the place. Um, But I've never been in an actual war zone. I've been in, you know, Guatemala in 1984, which was pretty close. Um, you know, gunshots at night, 14-year-olds with machine guns, all that. But I've never seen a missile fly over my head or, you know, heard mortar shells exploding in the vicinity. Do you remember the first time that you were like, wow, I am in a war? Do you remember um, the whole Salman Rushdie affair? Sure. Um, so I was in Afghanistan at the time in a cave somewhere, uh, outside of Kabul, like, uh, I think the town was called Sanglak, but we were just, we were living in a cave. And, um, that night there were a lot of bombs that fell outside the cave, but also inside the cave, they were listening to the Pashto version of the BBC. 
And I didn't understand what they were saying because I don't speak Pashto, but I did hear Salman Rushdie, Salman Rushdie, repeated over and over. And the Mujahideen I was with were getting more and more agitated and more angry. And and one guy there, this guy named Ahmed, spoke the tiniest bit of English. And I was like, Ahmed, what's what's happening? What, why are they so agitated? And he said, oh, yeah, uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, he write very bad book. And I said, well, yeah, but like, what, why is that the top of the BBC? You know, it's like a book review. He said, no, 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 uh, bad to Muslims. We Muslim must kill him. And they go out of the cave with their Kalashnikovs and they're firing their Kalashnikovs into the sky, yelling Allah Akbar and down with America. It was such an out of body experience because here I am an American and they're yelling down with America. And I had to explain to Salman Rushdie, he's either British or Indian, depending on your bent, but he's definitely not American. What are you talking about? It was clarifying in, in a way like, oh, okay, I'm with these people that they want my publicity. They want me to be here to shoot them and show what they are doing, but they do not have my interest, my best interest uh, in mind. The other weird thing that happened, it's why I don't have my hearing, a lot of war is boring. I mean, you know, when we think of war photography or war journalism, we think of movies and the bombs dropping and the, as you were saying, the, you know, the missiles flying overhead. And yeah, that happens. But I would say 90% of the time is just is waiting or hiding or, or moving from cave to cave, right? And so one day when we were particularly bored, um, we were playing a game of shoot the can. You know, the Mujahideen and I were playing shoot the can. And I grew up in Maryland where you had to take a riflery in summer camp. That was part of your education. So I'm like, I got to marksman level in riflery. Like I know how to shoot a gun. And so we would play with their Kalashnikovs, shoot the can. And normally they'd win, but one day I won. One day I beat them. And they got so angry with me or so, I don't know, like how dare a woman beat them at this like manly game that that morning we went over to this sort of area where they practice their um, routines and they're climbing under wires and stuff like that. And they told me, you know, you stay right here, get your camera. They were miming all this. So I was waiting with my camera for something to happen. And they exploded a, a, a bomb about 10 feet away from me. Um, and it got all over my face and I had a piece of shrapnel in my, in my hand and um, I couldn't hear for three days. Just couldn't hear. I mean, it was just like, bomb went the 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 i don't know what you call that the 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 blowback or what is it called whatever mm. happens when a bomb goes up i mean i was just yeah. thrown back my ears were my hearing was gone um were they intending to, I had to kill blood you dripping from my hand mm -mm, they were intending to um put me in my place there's never like i don't even think they I think that they thought I'd be farther away from it when it went off. I think I moved up a little bit because I wasn't sure where I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to be doing. They seemed like they wanted me to shoot something. I just didn't know what it was. It was a lesson. It was a lesson about not getting too close to your subjects, about understanding your role, about understanding the role of women in the society in which you are shooting. How dare a woman beat them at this game of shoot the can? They could be both the kindest, uh, uh, humans in terms of feeding you and making sure you're okay and carrying your stuff. And they're very generous in terms of be, uh, uh, they're very generous to the guest, right? That's part of Afghan culture is being kind to the guest, but boy, do they not like women. So mm. it was this push pull of there's a woman amongst us. 
but she's our guest, but she's a journalist. You know, I would sit in my jeans and they'd make me cover my lap. I couldn't sit in my jeans without covering my lap. Like I couldn't sit uh, Indian style. In looking at your work and reading some of your essays, it seems like a lot of what I've read, there's a theme of conflict with men, of you being, having to, to fight your way through. I mean, that essay in The Nation about you know, you winning this uh, book award that was only for women, and then you look into it and like, oh, because these the Booker Prize, they rarely nominate women and all the judges. And then it just sort of, you know, you started unraveling the tapestry of um, bias in the literary world. And by the way, I, the other theme that I see through your work is personal courage and your like even the way you wrote that essay. I mean, obviously, being a war correspondent, there's obvious courage involved with that. But the way you wrote that essay, where you're like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna tell the truth." And here, you know, the first book was this was my title. What was it? Shutter whore or something like that? No, I wanted news whore because that's what journalists news. would call each other, right? Know, news whore, like you know, you're a whore for the news, right? Um, but they made me call it Shutter Babe, which had nothing like. I hated that title, and it also was objectifying me in, in in a book where I was the, you know, it was the female gaze. Like, you know, we talk about the, the male gaze all the time in film, but this was the whole idea of the book was I'm going to name each chapter after a man in my life, whether a lover or an antagonist or a boyfriend or my son or my ex-husband, like, but it's going to be me gazing, me doing the gazing, right? I am going to be the seer. I am, I, yeah. the female, I'm going to look at the men. So when you said that you think that my work has a, a problem with men, I don't agree. My work is about being a woman in a, in a world that is filled with sexism. And sexism can be... Um, can be given through women as well, and and often is right. So, in um, in a review of Shutter Babe, for example, a woman journalist said to me, "Aren't you worried that your frankness is going to get you labeled a slut?" And I got angry. I said, "Don't put that in there. No, no, I'm not worried about that. And no, I hate that word. And why are there no boy sluts? Right? Don't. This is not about what." And she printed it anyway, right? Or, mm. you know, getting called a soccer mom in another review. So it's not just men that are sexist. I think women have imbibed this idea of who they are and who they're allowed to be to such an extent that even those journalists that may call themselves enlightened and non-sexist and feminist still can't see past the sexism that has that they've been brewing in like tea all their lives right and so it's it's not so much i wouldn't call myself anti-men i love men i'm living with the man i love my sons like i i love what men bring to the table you can't live in the world as a woman and not experience violence I mean, I've been raped and I've dealt with being attacked. And I was listening to one of your podcasts and you were talking about how until you started talking about masks that nobody had ever been negative to you on Twitter before. Well, being a woman on Twitter means going to battle every day. Yeah. Every 
fucking day, somebody's going to call you a cunt. Somebody's going to call you a slut. Somebody's going to reach out and say, die, bitch. Like every day. So I try to avoid it sometimes, but sometimes it's unavoidable, right? Twitter has become a tool. We have to go there to learn the news, to see what other people are talking about, to promote our own work. It's incredible to me that a man can say, I've never had a problem on Twitter. It, like That just never occurred to me that you wouldn't be attacked, right? Well, well, let me let me clarify two things. First of all, uh, yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to imply that you have a problem with men. In fact, quite the opposite. What, what I was getting at is that it seems that you're incredibly kind and generous toward men, given the amount of abuse you've taken from them. That that's where I was trying to go <laughs> with that. I mean, you you know, well, we, can, we can we can go back. <laughs> no, no, go. I was going to say we can go back to Catherine Keener here for yeah. a second because the day that I met Catherine Keener for lunch was right after the Kavanaugh hearings, mm. and I had just written a letter after thirty years to the young man who had raped me in college. It was the last night of college. It was a date rape. I screaming out, don't do this. It was, there was, it was clear cut. I did not want to be having sex with him. And he attacked me and he was extremely drunk and he passed out afterwards and I couldn't get him to move. And I went to, you know, the Harvard health services afterwards. And I said, I, I, I want to file charges. And they told me what would happen if I filed charges. And it would mean that I'd have to stay in Boston for eight months and not start my life. So I ended up not pressing charges. It was the last night of school. I wanted to get out of there. But it's been this thing that has been weighing on me. So Kavanaugh, the Kavanaugh hearings just triggered something in me. And I just sat down quickly, wrote this letter to my rapist. And I said, you may not remember this night, but I've never been able to forget it. And here's what happened. And just kind of poured out of me. So Catherine and I met, we were met at the Odeon for lunch. And we were talking about Kavanaugh, obviously, as all women were talking at the time. And I read her this letter. I had it on my phone. I read her the letter that I'd written to my rapist. And she says, you have to publish that. I said, no, I'm not going to publish that. And she goes, no, you have to write about that. Um, because what had happened in the interim, before, but after writing the letter and before meeting Catherine, was that this man, 20 minutes after getting the letter, had called me on the phone and almost in tears, apologizing profusely for about 25 minutes, just on and on and on. Like, I can't believe it. I'm so sorry. I was a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. I I made amends to everyone. I didn't even know I needed to make amends to you. Let me make the amends right now. I can't believe it. I have daughters. You know, it was just one of those moments, this intense moments. And Catherine said, you have to write about that. And I said, look, I've got a full-time job. I was working at the World Science Festival at the time, I think. And I, I you know, I have, this, I have all these things that I have to get done. And she said, no, you've got to write about that. So literally while I was watching her say the words that I'd spoken on that subway, or I'd written on that subway, I was typing out another story, sitting on the bench in, in, in uh, Washington Square Park, writing a story about that. And... Again, you know, that ended up being um, a turning point in terms of writing because it was it opened the floodgates to all these women writing to me and telling me that they'd been raped and they wanted to reach out. So then I ended up publishing the letter that I wrote to my rapist without you know, redacting his name out and put it on my blog, which only has three things, by the way. I don't really have a blog. It's just on my website, just a letter. If, you, if anyone wants to see it, it's mm -hmm. there. 
as a as a template. And template. so it's not yeah I mean, as a template for if you want to write your rapist. <laughs> <laughs> a few guidelines. Uh, yeah, boilerplate. A few guidelines. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think um, I know you weren't saying that. That I, I believe me. I know you weren't saying that you're a man hater. But I do think that it's almost impossible, almost impossible, for men to understand what it feels like to be a woman in the world. And in, in a sense, that's why I wrote this book, Lady Parts. Like, it's about all these operations and it's about you know science being anti-woman and sexist and um it's about being a mother and it's about trying to make it as a solo mother and it's about you know all the barriers that get put in place whether corporate barriers or health barriers or health insurance barriers all these barriers to women's lives and i find myself even with my my current partner we've been together for three years saying if saying often, you just don't get it. You will never get it. You can't understand what it feels like to be a woman in the world. Just like I can't understand what it means to be black in the world, right. I empathize with it. I see it. I march this summer with my kids. But there's no way that I understand what it's like to be particularly a, a, a black man walking around and being afraid of being shot all the time. Now, as a woman, I walk around and afraid of being raped all the time. You know, it, being a woman means walking home from the subway, constantly aware of the footsteps behind you, the footsteps in front of you, who's, you know, and having been actually raped, assaulted several times, um, I, I'm, I, I'm always, I'm always watching the, the, the atmosphere for changes in temperature. Um, and and the craziest thing is I even wrote a, a a story in the New York Times Magazine like 2000 about what it means to raise a girl in the world because my daughter was three years old at the time and she was trying to climb to the top of this rock and this man this father whose son was also three and climbing to the top of the rock was trying to get her to come down saying you can't go up there because she was tiny she looked like she was one but she was the same age of his as his kid and he was trying to keep her to go to the going from the top of this rock and i wrote the story called king of the mountain for the new york times magazine about both how society is going to try to control her and and my deep concern that she's going to get assaulted. And so what happens 20 years later, she's 22 years old, she's in the Peace Corps, exactly a year ago, so we're December 31st right now, on January 1st, 2020, I get a call from my daughter in Cameroon at three in the morning her time, I guess it was 9 p.m. my time, there's a man trying to break into her, her home. and she's on whatsapp and i'm on whatsapp but she has terrible service in her tiny little you know her tiny little village and she can't get out of the house to go to the one hill where there's good coverage so i'm getting sort of digital dumps of scary texts and i'm sending back texts and and i and and i don't it's hard for me to even go back to that night but my daughter ended up sending out an SOS to a, a, a male friend who is like 40 minutes away by moto. And he got on a, you know, one of those taxi motos in Cameroon, got to her house, scared the guy away. She had a kitten at the time. They both got on the back of this moto, escaped. You know, the Peace Corps then had to be called in. I'd written that story already. I'd written about my fear of her dealing with 
the reality of the world of being a woman in the world. And then boom, 22 years old happens to her as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it must be, I'm not a parent. Um, I don't think I have the courage to, to have kids. And you just described one of the scenarios that scares me. Um, but, you know, it must be really complicated because that guy who was trying to get her not to climb on the rock, um, from his perspective, he was probably being protective, right? He, he it wasn't he wasn't saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, you're a girl, you'll never be able to climb." He was saying, "Hey, little girl, let let me help you," right? And so, as a parent, you you become an instrument of the very oppression you're trying to prepare your child to overcome. You know what I mean? Because you're conflicted. You want to protect her, and yet you want her to go out in the world and and learn. And and in some ways, the only way she is going to learn is to take crazy risks like her mom did and deal with the repercussions, you know, and maybe lose some hearing along the way or, or what have you. It's it's a conundrum that parents face that uh, is unimaginable to me. There's so much I want to say in response to that. Um, but to be brief, I think the key to parenthood is the balance between those two, between protecting the child and letting them learn to fall. And that sounds so cliche, and I can't even believe I just said that, but it's true. And um, I've always told my kids, you know, we get one life, right? We get one life. And what are you going to fill it with? You know, what are you going to, are you going to sit back and let life happen to you or are you going to take life by the balls and go out there and do something and you know i'm proud i have two older kids and one younger kid and i'm proud of my two older kids right now as we speak my older son is in georgia going door to door canvassing for asaf and warnock my daughter was in the peace corps and she's about to apply to medical school i mean she's applying to medical school like i'm proud of them I'm proud of who they've become. Um, I have a 14 year old that's doing Zoom school, <laughs> suffering as all teenagers. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine being in ninth grade through this pandemic. Yeah. I, I just feel so sorry for these kids. Yeah. But you know, tonight he's out with his friends in a park and they're all meeting masked and you know, they're in Fort Greene Park hanging out being teenagers if they can, the way that they can, which is, you know, outside on a frigid night <laughs> on New Year's Eve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, um, I could talk to you for hours. I, I really appreciate you taking some time. Um, and I wanted to say sort of, you know, and it feels artificial. I say wrapping up because there are 15 different tangents. Uh, I'd love to go down with you. Maybe we can chat again in the future if you're up for it. Um, but your sure. your lady parts is actually it's a triple entendre, you know, because you you name two of them. But the the one that occurred to me, I'm sort of wrestling with the uh, the notion of writing a memoir at the moment. One of the challenges is that the impulse is to try to make it complete in some way, and I feel like maybe the first step is recognizing that there's no way to tell the whole story. You're only telling part of the story. 
And so your memoir is parts of your life, parts of your experience, parts of your identity. Absolutely. And I would say to you, in terms of thinking about memoir, um, the best way that I've come up with structuring a memoir is gimmick. You know, with Shutter Babe, it was each chapter. I mean, when I tried to sort of think about like the trajectory of my life as a war photographer, there were the different wars and the different countries, but there was always a man just off screen, right? And so if I wanted to write the sort of feminist tract and do this whole idea of, of a female gaze, that's what that's what struck me is, okay, I'm going to tell each chapter is going to be the name of a man, but that man's just that's just incidental to the story, but it allows me to tell these the story in pieces. Mm-hmm. With lady parts, each section, the chapters are smaller, but each section is the name of a body part that was either excised or broken from me. So the first chapter is vagina, when I nearly died from vaginal cuff dehiscence. And then you go back in time, and it's uterus, and then it's breast, because I had a stage zero breast cancer diagnosis. Then it's heart, because I had all these heart palpitations at the same time I was going on Tinder dates and looking for love. And then it's, you know, then it was cervix, and then it was, I don't even remember, cervix, oh, brain, and then uh, lungs, because I ended up getting I mean, lungs wasn't in the original proposal. I did not think I was going to get COVID-19 when I wrote that proposal, but that ended up being the final chapter. Will there be an ear chapter? No. Um, I'm going to write about the whole hearing aid issue. And, you know, Elizabeth Warren is really big on this. Um, It's absurd that we don't have a better um, system for uh, hearing aids in this country. There seems to be some shame about wearing them. I don't have any shame. I just want to hear better. Um, but I do think that there's a sea change about to happen. And as soon as the FDA can approve these devices that are you know, hearing aid devices, but that you don't have to go to a hearing specialist to get. And when we start treating hearing the same way we treat our eyes, you know, we all, I, I, I wear glasses when I'm reading, I wear glasses when I'm working. Um, hopefully hearing aids will become like that as well. I bet a lot of us who are our age, I don't know if you're, I'm, I'm 54, I don't know how old you are, but you know, around the same era, right? Four years a old. A lot of us start losing our hearing even, you're, oh, you look younger. <laughs> But anyway, a lot of Only us started losing our hearing around this age. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us started losing our hearing in, you know, post-50. It's a normal thing. And it would be great if we could all be able to have $199 hearing aids rather than $6,000 hearing aids. That's all I have to say about yeah. hearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter closed. Deborah, thank you so much. Yeah. I, I look forward to reading more of your work. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. 
you're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.